The Recovery of Lost Joy is the series we're going to start tonight. The title tonight is Lost Joy Through Becoming Accustomed to an Incomplete Response to the Gospel. There are different kinds of ignorance. That I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean a, a lack of understanding. I have a, a book that on the Gospel of John. This is Jesus and the woman at the well. And she doesn't know who Jesus is and how living water will make a difference in her life. You can tell she doesn't understand the whole thing. This is not the kind of ignorance we're looking at. There's a, there is ignorance like this. People just don't understand how to start the Christian life, how to get saved. There's another kind of ignorance that we're going to study that relates to people like me, people like you, people who have been Christians for a while and things we don't understand and the way it affects us. So here's the ignorance of the outsider. Listen to these words. She thought she knew life, for she had run the gamut of its experiences. But this stranger told her plainly that she was ignorant. She did not know, he said, the gift of God. She had no wellspring within her. Her kind are with us today in great multitude. These worldlings imagine they have gotten the best out of life. They've lived without restraint. They've tasted pleasure of all kinds. But anything which smacks of religion or the supernatural, they are careful to shun. They do not like to be made uneasy or uncomfortable. Perhaps more than that, they surely don't want to be bored. What is there in it for them? They care not for self-denial. They wish to continue as they please. And all the while, they imagine that they have chosen the larger, richer life, but they do not know any more than this woman knew the taste of the gift of God and the preciousness of life in the sun. Isn't that well said? So there's that kind of ignorance. There's another kind. It's in a text I want you to follow with me. I hope you have a Bible of some kind with you. I say that all the time because, because when you stick stuff up on screens, it just makes it easy for people to say, I don't need to. I'm just going to read it up there. Have your own Bible with you so you get used to, you probably don't do this anymore, where you get used to finding where stuff is or your iPhone or your iPad. But don't just do that. Lost joy through becoming accustomed to an incomplete response to the gospel. I want to look at Romans 6, 15 to 18. We'll just scratch the surface of this tonight. <clears throat> Paul writes, What then? Are we to sin because we do? We are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. And then here's the phrase. Do you not know? Now, he's writing to Christians. He's not writing the way Jesus was talking to this woman at the well. He's writing to believers. He's not met them, but he's writing to a church. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, 
either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So there's something he's not sure they know. And what he's saying is, not knowing this makes a huge difference. The difference is between death and righteousness. So knowing what he's going to talk about is really important for Christian people. If they don't know this, there's a lot at stake. That's what Paul is saying. 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Not truth that was committed to them, but they are committed to a certain truth. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We're not looking at all of those verses tonight. But I'm interested in that phrase. Paul, writing to professing Christians, that's his audience, he's concerned they don't know something deeply enough. And if they don't know it deeply enough, they will continue to live lives enslaved, that's the word he uses, or bound in habits. And the guilt and the guilty conscience, and the troubled inside that they will feel all the while holding to an evangelical confession of faith. So that, that's the issue that we're going to open this series with tonight, the recovery of lost joy. There'll be a lot of different things that we'll look at, but we're starting with this. Not, not knowing certain things well enough right at the start of the Christian life makes a huge difference, Paul says. There's a kind of discouragement that settles on your soul when you had an expected end to an endeavor and it doesn't seem to deliver. I've shared this story once a long time ago. I uh, took on a project of putting in some shelves in the little cold room in our basement. And the plan called for drilling holes right into the concrete walls so these self-tapping screws could hold the two-by-four studs on which I was going to, all by myself, put shelves. That was the plan. And that was the goal. And my first discovery was that there were such things as masonry drill bits. Did you people know this? There's masonry drill bits. I learned that the hard way. I remember like it was yesterday. After drilling for about 45 minutes, my then friend, he's gone to be with Jesus, Bob Lurie, he told me on the phone that I needed a masonry drill bit. And I, I struggled to get this bit out of the hole that I had in the concrete, I'd switch the thing. You can do that with a drill. Switch it to reverse, and it'll actually come out. It was amazing. So I did that. No matter how hard I leaned on that old drill bit, it didn't do a thing. Got a masonry drill bit and tried and tried and tried. I called Bob again. And it was then that I learned the existence of something called a hammer drill. Did you people know that too? And so he was going to bring it over to the house. Don't worry, he said. I'm going to bring one. I just kept drilling. I was down there waiting. I kept drilling and drilling, leaning on this thing. 
Not much happened. Bob came down the stairs, and he watched me, just sweating away with my old drill, my masonry drill bit, and I'm leaning on it and leaning on it and leaning on it. And then he came, and he put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, do, do you have that drill in reverse? My mind immediately flashed back to when I had reversed the drill to get that first drill bit out of the wall. Don't laugh at me. That's the best picture I could come up with, thinking and thinking, the best picture I could come up with about drudgery. Working hard, yet not getting the results. What if Bob hadn't come? Is there anything worse than just going through the same motions, getting used to something that seems to fall so short of the way it ought to be? So the subject for this next little while in this series is going to be the recovery of lost joy. There, there can settle on Christian people a sense of drudgery, a lack of joy or development in our walk with the Lord. Lots of reasons for that. We're going to look at many of them in this series. The important thing I want to talk about tonight is there's supposed to be a joy in the Christian life. 1 Peter 1.8 Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And look, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Wow, a joy that you, is so great, it's hard to even put into words, and filled with glory. So, so Peter says, there's a joy we're supposed to have. It's anchored in glory. It's filled with glory because... Our citizenship is in heaven, and it's anchored there in eternity. All sorts of things come here that fluctuate and change, can wear us down, but our, our joy stays firm because it's, it's anchored where we're going. It's in eternity. Our minds are filled with a vivid understanding of the glory of Christ, the glory of eternity, and it's abiding. Here, here's the closest. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. Imagine, so here's the kind of joy I'm picturing. Imagine someone who went to glory. I don't know all of what that will be like. Sees everything of life with Christ and the age to come. And came back here like Lazarus. Came back here. Would he ever trade everything visible here for what he had seen in eternity? And the answer, I think, is no. No, he wouldn't. So Peter is saying in the same way, our heart is so fixed there now that it's a root and an anchor for our joy. Our joy is real and abiding, just like eternity is real and abiding. Now here's what I want to drill down into, no pun intended, what I want to look into tonight in this first teaching, because I have 
gradually developed the conviction as I've aged that many of our troubles in the Christian life come from not making a a deep enough start. The starting place is conversion. I get it. And I don't, I don't just mean that conversion is where you find forgiveness. That, of course, is gloriously true. But what I mean is conversion is the starting place for everything else that's going to develop later on, farther down in the rest of your Christian life. If your initial understanding of conversion isn't as biblically big as it was meant to be, then everything else is going to be too small all the way down the road in your Christian walk. That's a conviction that I have. It's so important. Your understanding and investment in conversion lays the foundation for everything else that Christ will build on. Because conversion is so important... I'm very fond of Paul's words in Romans 6, 17. We read them. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And I often wonder if you ask 10 church-going people if they were Christians, and I'm sure they would say yes, and then you ask them what made them so sure they were Christians. Would you get 10 answers? Would you get five This verse is one of many that gives a solid definition of what it actually is to become a Christian. It gives us all a firm, definable starting point. And it kind of helps us begin with Christ in such a way that we're all on the same page of certainty. Yes, I am a Christian. And what I want to say is Christian conversion is a three-part experience of which we'll look at one part tonight. It is a combination of three things. Mind, heart, and will. And all three of them have to be present. If I have a stool up here that has three legs, you can sit on it. If I take one of those legs away, you can't sit on it anymore. Christian conversion is an experience of mind, heart, and will. And I, I'm, I'm convinced that there are all sorts of religious people who will experience all sorts of spiritual depression. I'm not talking clinical depression. Spiritual depression, fear, weariness, simply because they never made the start of their Christian walk big enough. I'm not saying they aren't saved. That's not up for me to say. I'm not saying they're not going to heaven. I'm, I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about joy the recovery of lost joy, an understanding of the inward life of Christ that they have here on earth that brings joy unspeakable, full of glory. And if a small start is made in conversion, even if God is gracious, and I have no doubt that when a when a five or six-year-old kneels by bed and mom says some words and the child repeats them, that Jesus can come into a young heart with his grace. Okay, don't don't think I'm not saying that. I know that can happen. I got saved when I was seven. I did not have a big enough understanding of conversion when I was seven. That's two different things. So I'm going to take some time 
Look at these three elements of mind, heart, and will in the conversion process. Tonight, we're just going to look at the mind. So don't worry. We're like, we're like over halfway done. Point number one. The mind must have a firm grasp of revealed saving truth. It's hinted at in these verses from Romans 6. I read 15 and 16 where Paul says, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And he says, no, that that won't work. You can't bring that understanding into your conversion. It won't work. And then, 16, four words. Do you not know? So you can be saved without really knowing that you don't go on sinning just so grace will abound. That's what Paul says. You're not starting right until you know that that won't work. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? So here's someone that says, it's not a big deal when I sin, when I come to Jesus, because the more I sin, the more his grace comes. Paul says, no, don't you know, here's what he says, you can't continue to sin because if you continue to sin, you're going to be a slave to sin. And you need to be righteous because righteousness, like like becoming a slave to sin, righteousness increases incrementally. It's easier to follow Jesus the more you obey Jesus. So don't, don't you know that you can't just sin assuming grace covers everything? Don't you know that you can't start the Christian life properly that way? So I would say that question, verse 16, do you not know? It implies. It implies that at least some people to whom Paul was writing, he had heard somehow about this, they lacked a knowing. about what being a Christian was all about. Can you, can you imagine a person thinking that the more he sinned, the more of God's grace would be adequately, automatically manifested in his life? And you can tell that this ignorance, it just leaves Paul stunned. <laughs> How could anyone who professes to be a Christian think like that? And I can tell you, you can probably think of it yourself, but I can tell you for sure that a lot of professing Christians tend to think that way. I talk to them lots of times. There are people who want to call themselves Christians. Increasingly today, people want to call themselves Christians and never once go to church. They just quit. There are people who want to call themselves Christians but maintain homosexual relationships. There are people who want to call themselves Christians but aren't faithful to their marriage partner. There are people who want to call themselves Christians whose lives manifest nothing but greed or idolatry or sexual immorality. Now, people have always, people have always failed and sinned against the Lord, but something has been happening more and more lately in the church, something different. People are starting to feel that it's almost optional 
whether or not they're like really, really good Christians. And if they choose to deliberately disobey the Lord in some area, well, then you, you stop being a 9 out of 10 Christian and you're a 7 out of 10 Christian. But you'll, you'll be okay because God is loving. We, gracious. Let's face it. Worship courses are all about God's love. There aren't very many about God's judgment. And so, it's going to be okay. I talk to parents all the time, and they'll usually say something like, you know, Pastor Don, the next generation is going to have a different-looking Christianity. And I, I keep wondering what that means. I can remember not all that long ago, speaking to someone you don't know them, in my office, caught in the middle of an affair, and here's how the conversation went. He said, we aren't really sleeping together. We're affectionate, but we haven't really broken any commandments. She really understands me in a way my wife doesn't. Our relationship is really, it's a beautiful thing. And I said, this is subtle pastoral counseling. I said, if you continue doing that, you're going to go to hell. Isn't that true? Like, are we afraid to say that anymore? What are you talking about, he said. Looked at me like some of you are looking at me. I took out my New Testament and I read these words. Do you not know? Is that the same question? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. In other words, lots of people are going to tell you otherwise. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those sins aren't what I'm preaching about tonight. That wasn't the point of that story. My point is the same four words. Do you not know? They're the same words that Paul uses in our text in Romans 6.16. Do you not know? We're talking about the mind functioning properly in the Christian life. And people can enter the Christian life and be way down the road in their attempts to follow Jesus, finding it a terribly unjoyful, frustrating experience. They find themselves feeling hypocritical, inauthentic, and yet, they're still missing the joy they thought they would get by doing their own thing. They're restless, they're uneasy, they're fighting God on the inside, and all because there were certain key truths that were never firmly grasped in the mind when they started their Christian life. Nobody told them. Nobody told them. I'll tell you what happened. They were probably in a meeting, maybe a meeting like this or somewhere else, and someone said to them, you know, you're finding life hard. You're lonely. Jesus wants to be your companion. You're afraid of the future. Jesus will guide and direct your life. And some needs were presented, and the people had those needs, and then Jesus was presented as the answer to those needs. And people said, yeah, I need that. And one of two things happens. Neither of them is good. Either 
God in his grace and his mercy meets that need. You lost your job, you need money. Jesus will help you. He wants to be involved in your life. And so whatever the need was, God in his mercy met that need. But now that the need is gone, why do they need Jesus? Right? I'm fixed. Or the need didn't go away, even though they accepted Jesus. And then they're going to conclude Christianity doesn't work. Neither one of those options is good. Because no one told them things they needed to know if they were going to start their Christian life properly. What I want to leave you with now is simply this. Mind, heart, will. Tonight, just the mind we're looking at. There are certain truths, certain absolute non-negotiable truths without which the Christian life simply cannot be lived. You don't have to know everything and you don't have to do everything perfectly. But you do have to engage your mind in understanding certain terms. No amount of religious activity or worship or prayer or benevolence can make up for not knowing certain things. They can't be overlooked. Here are some of the ingredients. This isn't in your notes. I scribbled these as I was walking from my office to that door. I, I hope I can read my writing. Here are some things you have to know right off the bat. Make sure you believe in Jesus in the sense of believing everything he said. Make sure you yield to his daily lordship when he speaks. You can't live the Christian life without it. You have to know these things. Make sure you repent and forsake sin whenever he tells you to do it. Make sure you let Jesus define what sin is rather than the standards of your friends or your professors at university. Paul would say, don't, don't you know this is how it works? Don't you know it won't work any other way? Make sure, make sure that you can answer that question. Do you not know? Some things you just have to know for sure in your own heart and mind. Everyone said? Amen.